and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. And this is our podcast where we talk about Ari's experiences with Alport syndrome and his three kidney transplants and all the other medical stuff he's gone through over the course of his life. And last episode, we talked about Ari's experiences in college. He left for his freshman year of college right after he got his yeah. very first kidney transplant. And this week, we're going to be talking about um, the failure of his first transplant. Yeah. Which happened pretty quickly after you went to college. Yeah. Before we do that, though, one of the things that I was going to mention is that a friend of ours pointed out that, especially in the first few podcasts, I hadn't told the audience that I'm your wife. <laughs> and so it was unclear what the interview interviewee <laughs> right. relationship was. And while I really like our intro and outro music that we have, because you wrote it and we explained that in the last podcast, yeah. that we could really benefit from one of those Gilligan's Island style or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend theme songs that explains the premise of the show. Okay, sounds good to me. Okay, so here's, here's what I've been workshopping so far. Cool. This is the story of a genetic disorder that means that Ari can't make collagen four. It affects his eyes and ears and his kidneys. But hang on, there's more. This is the story of his three transplants and all this other stuff that happened in his life. He'll tell all his medical stories on this podcast. By the way, I'm his wife. <laughs> okay, so I cannot tell you how much I love that. I think we should completely scrap in wait and just go and do that. That was amazing. I, I, I'm never going to do that again. We should put it up on the website. I'm just picturing all the people who tuned in. Oh, I'm going to try out this kidney cast, see how it goes, and then immediately turned it off again. Last week, we were talking about how your kidney transplant at first started to go really, really well. It mm -hmm. seemed normal and fine, and you were in school, but pretty quickly, it started to not function so well. Um, you were uremic, which was affecting your cognition and judgment yeah. and um, giving you a lot of fatigue. And that um, in the last trimester of your first year at school, you had to go home to get a ureter fixed. It was kinked, yeah. and they replaced it. They took your native ureter from one of the kidneys that was not right. functioning and replaced it in the transplanted kidney. So why don't we pick up the story right there? You had gone home, you had gotten the, the, the new ureter, and then summer goes by, and you go back to school at Lawrence University. Okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, at that point, I was feeling good. Um, recovered from yet another abdominal surgery and excited to, to go. And I did. Things were going pretty well. I would say, though, that during that first trimester, things went fairly well, but I started to sort of slow down at the end of the trimester. So, again, this is around winter break. So, in December, um, come back in January, doing pretty well, but. I was, again, I was starting to sleep more and feel those symptoms. And they're really, you know, I, I talked last time about how sort of insidious those symptoms are, where because I'm compromised, I can't evaluate if I'm compromised or not. It's also a thing where it doesn't happen overnight, like really doesn't. It's very gradual. And so it totally sneaks up on you so that like by the time it was February or so, I could go, oh, I think I'm feeling worse now than I was in October, but I hadn't noticed that transition. Um, and I'm not sure that people around me could have noticed it either, because it's very, very gradual. Um, so how long did this ureter surgery sort of work and seem to fix the problem until 
you know, things were bad wow. again? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think basically until about December because I came back and then that second trimester I was doing okay, but I, basically it was the kind of thing where I thought I was doing better than I actually was. And in fact, I think it was suggested that I take the third trimester off and come home. And I did that also because there was uh, an episode or what we hoped was just an episode of acute rejection. So my numbers had gotten bad again, my blood test numbers, and I wasn't feeling well. And so my doctors back in Portland said, we'd really rather not try to be treating you like through another doctor across half the country. Please, it would be great if you were also not in school, just come home and we can kind of figure this out. So I did, and then we had like six months to do that for them to give me the steroid pulse and the other drugs and really closely monitor my blood levels and things like that. And so they did. And then I went back to school again the next fall. But at this point, this is you're two years into your college education and you've already missed two terms totally and your illness has prevented you from attending all the classes and the terms that you were there. Right. In fact, by that point, so that would have been, yeah, by the end of my second year, which should have been like my sophomore year, I had really only received credit for the first two trimesters. I think I got credit for one class, maybe two, the third trimester of my freshman year, and then I think I withdrew passing. I'm saying I think. I know. I've seen my transcript many times. I withdrew passing from fall semester or sorry, fall trimester, winter trimester, and then took a leave of absence spring trimester or spring term. Um, and then I came back going, okay, here it is again. That third year, and really my confidence, it was very, very shaken, not to mention the fact that my health was actually not great at that point. So yeah, how are you feeling at this point? What was what was the day-to-day -day health like? Day-to-day uh, -day health was I was sleeping more. I was... What's more? Um, instead of, you know, eight hours of sleep, probably 10 or 12 at that point, which quickly uh, ramped up to you know, 15, 20, something like that. Uh, there were definite times where I, I slept for a very, very long time. Um, I think I remember sort of keeping track that there was some 36-hour period where I was in total awake, like, three hours. Any, any other symptoms or anything? Um, all the standard uremia things. So very tired, very sleepy, super forgetful, um super cognitively fuzzy. I was just going to say tired again, but there's a thing, this is usually related just to potassium, but there's a thing where like physically you feel, I don't know, gross or kind of heavy. The, the potassium specific thing, when you have too much potassium in your system, it weighs down in your muscles. And so you have this sort of heavy feeling. And it wasn't necessarily that I had that specific feeling, but... um it's that sort of thing where like you have the, the flu and you feel draggy and it's separate from the tired feeling, mm -hmm. but just physically I kind of felt, Ugh, which is not a very descriptive word, but it's the best I have right now. 
Okay, and so when do you go from you've had the surgery to fix things, and then they are getting progressively worse and progressively worse Mm -hmm. to oh, this kidney is failing and it's gonna fail? Well, so we're in in fall term of ninety eight. I've had some blood tests. I've been feeling unwell. There was uh, as part of that, I got to do yet another, not surprisingly, twenty four hour urine through my doctor in town. And, and what's the college version of 24-hour urine like versus the childhood version? <laughs> well, the childhood version is kind of easier because you just uh, you get the jug from the fridge. and may- Or maybe you say, Mom, I need the jug, depending on how old you are. But the college version is a little weird because uh, I had actually joined a fraternity by that time, which sometimes is a weird thing to me to contemplate, but um, I did. And-, um, and I'll just interject because... The image of you. I don't want people to think that you are a fraternity guy. Uh, <laughs> Lawrence University has a really, really different culture of that stuff. Uh, yeah, certainly at the time they did. And I was in, um, I think it's fair to say, a fairly nerdy fraternity. So I, I was living in the fraternity house with my roommate, Adam. And we we were very proud of having a um, a mini fridge in our room. It was great. But because of like the shelving system that was built into the mini fridge, the the twenty four hour urine jug wouldn't fit in it, and I went not to the kitchen proper where like food was prepared, and so we had industrial refrigerators and freezers and things because that you know we had a, a cook for the thirty or forty guys that were living in the house, but we had sort of a an auxiliary. Um, refrigerator in the sort of in our dining area and I just went and put my jug in there and it had you know some like medical stickering on it that said like Deckard Aaron and some medical record number and some other stuff like that and this is another like small indication that I wasn't thinking super clearly Uh because any normal person would go you know I could have sent an email at that point to everybody like hey FYI Got a jug of pee in the refrigerator, and I didn't. I didn't even mention it to anybody. There were, you know, procedures such as that was, like rules about what you can do in the house and where you can keep things, and you just need to let people know, and I didn't. And then I, for a couple of weeks, people were like, dude, was that was that your pee in the refrigerator? And I was like, oh, yeah, whoopsie, you know. Um, you know, and I was hygienic about it, but that's a weird choice to have made. So it was in the refrigerator. I did it. I, I gave it to the doctor. Um, at some point, too, I think it was that fall, but it might have been the previous spring, I was actually having some issues with um, iron deficiency and with anemia. And so they actually checked me into the hospital and gave me an IV iron treatment. And this is a hospital in Wisconsin? Yeah, in Appleton. And um, it was the first time they had ever done it, and they were all very excited, but for some reason, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if they used the wrong stuff or if they did it the wrong way, but I had an anaphylactoid reaction. Um, I went into anaphylactic shock as a result of... That's really scary. ...that treatment. Yeah, it was really not fun. Um, They you know, I'm fine now. <laughs> they managed to, to bring me back um, just fine. But uh, it was scary. And I, I had a couple of times where I just stayed like an overnight or a weekend or I think one time a week 
in that hospital. And that's not a great sign when you're also trying to go to college. So to answer your shorter question, in about October, November, I was having these blood uh, levels that were not good. I was feeling not well. They did a 24-hour urine. And around in like mid-November, shortly before Thanksgiving, um, my nurse called and basically said, how soon can you get home? And I'm pretty sure it was a Wednesday. And it was a Wednesday afternoon, especially with the time difference. And I, I was like, uh, well, it can't be today. And I'm not sure I can like make a plane ticket for tomorrow and get all of my stuff put together right, the logistics. that fast to leave. Um, but maybe Friday morning. And so that's what I did. And did she tell you on the phone that your kidney was failing? Or did she just cryptically tell you to get home? No, she said, these are what your labs look like. And she gave me specific numbers. And I, you know, I know what those numbers should be. And they were very, very bad. And they've been rising in the bad ways. You don't want them to rise. And um, we think that you may be in chronic rejection, which is the irreversible bad kind. And we need you to get home right away so we can take care of you. And so how did that feel? It was terrible. I was I was devastated. Um, I remember standing in the hall outside my room in the fraternity house with the cordless phone and I just hung up and I just stood there going, oh, my life is about to totally change. And in some ways not really having recognized that my life was already not in the place I was kind of hoping and thinking it was, you know, uh-huh. right. I hadn't gotten credit for lots of classes and it withdrew passing all the time. And like I'd already said, but that was the like splash of reality saying, no, you, you have to drop out of college right now. And so I sort of stood there and you know, it's interesting. I don't remember who I called first. I think I called home first and then I called my girlfriend. But I had to make a lot of phone calls immediately. Right. You and know, I need, a- yeah, I needed to get plane tickets. I needed to let people know. And then I also needed to, um, like, friends and things know. But I also needed to, like, get in touch with the dean of students immediately and say, here's what's happening. How can I do this the best way? So when you get on that plane on Friday morning, mm-hmm. that's the last time you're at Lawrence University. Yeah. I guess before we move into talking about the transplant failure, do you want to talk any about what that means to you and what <laughs> what leaving Lawrence meant? Yeah, because I, I, I feel like I especially have been focusing on sort of details and um, symptoms and negative aspects of that experience. But getting into and going to this conservatory was a really big deal for me. Um, I was really invested in my musical learning and training and experiences, and this was the next step. It was uh, really, just really important to me. Uh, I had really carefully researched and chosen only a few places to audition and apply at, and after visiting them and auditioning, it was by far my first choice to attend. And so then I did, and the people I met there, and you know, now thanks to Facebook, I get to still be friends with them, and I'm really glad because they were really cool. Um, one of the things that I have 
said many times to students since then, largely as a result of my experience at Lawrence, is, yeah, sometimes high school is not fun, sometimes it's not what you want, and it's because you're sort of forced by circumstance and geography to attend this particular school with this group of people. But if you choose the right college, um, and sometimes even if you don't, just because some colleges are really big, you're going to find those people who are like you. You're going yeah, to, your people. Yeah, your people. You're going to sort of have sifted out the people that aren't your people, and you're going to find them there because that's sort of what college is about. And I felt like I had found my people in like the good ways and the bad ways. Like I had found them. These are musical people. These are academically interested people in the ways that I was musical, in the ways that I was academically interesting or interested, rather. Um, and I liked hanging out with them. I liked making music with them. I liked learning with them and from them. I liked the classes that I took. It, the musical training I received there is probably the strongest musical training I have had in my you know lengthy, eventually extended college career. And um, it was it it was a really big deal that I was there, and it was devastating to have to leave all of it, to leave like all these friends who I felt had created or helped create a better me and a school that I really liked and I was really enjoying working at, even while I was sort of denying to myself that I hadn't been able to do the work for quite a while. Yeah, and that's why I have that really distinct memory, even when like my brain was not helping me very much at the time of just sort of standing there and having it all hit me and going, oh, wow, what's what's about to happen? Everything is about to change. Right, and so you're in this uncertainty what did you think was going to happen at this point? What, what's in your head in terms of what happens after a kid, your kidney fails? What were you thinking? <laughs> um, several things. Uh, there was a part of me that was like, ah, we'll do another prednisone pulse and it'll be fine. Uh-huh. And there was another part of me that said, okay, that's ridiculous. You know, that's not going to happen. And that part of me, which was the correct part of me, uh, thought, well, maybe I'll do dialysis for a while, but... But that'll be okay, you know, because dialysis isn't that a, that big a deal. Well, you hadn't, yeah, you hadn't done much yet, right? Because I hadn't really done it, and I didn't really know. And th- there was also just I had a strong feeling of, you know, I'll get another transplant and I'll come right back. I will get back on this horse. Um, I'm not sure why I was so confident I would get another transplant right away. Like I wasn't just assuming that some other member of my family would just drop everything and do that but I just felt I don't know maybe with the confidence of youth or something I felt really confident that well you know that'll happen it'll be take a year or something but then have another transplant and well if I could interject to perhaps psychoanalyze this past moment that I was not there for sure (laughs) um you have always struck me as a very patient person in general I think that's a quality that you have and Though sometimes you will ding yourself for complaining a lot, I think you are also a very optimistic person. Hmm. And I think that's a great strength of yours, obviously. But I think sometimes some of the scariest things that have happened to you are sometimes the result of optimism that verges on denial. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah. we're going to talk about more about the failure of the transplant, and we talked a little bit in the last episode about the, the factors that caused the transplant. First, the transplant to fail. Yeah. And... 
first was like there was just some bad things happening the uremia the other ill effects it wasn't sort of flourishing within you the way that a, a good transplant hopefully should but also that because of the uremia you weren't taking meds properly Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sound like I'm too defensive of you about that, although I am, your, I am your wife and I am very defensive of you. Sure. But I think that really, like, I've seen you when you're your remake. And so I think that while not trying to patronize you or tell you that you're not an autonomous adult, that probably going away alone to college was too optimistic a choice for that point in your life. Yeah, probably it was. That's kind of that, that's sad because it's sort of you want to think about all those inspiring stories of this person had all these terrible health problems and cancer and a liver transplant and they managed to earn four PhDs and run five <laughs> marathons and <laughs> yeah right but you need to sometimes limit yourself and and I know this sounds weird but like limit your goals a little bit to protect yourself mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know I, I don't know exactly what I was going to say what I was thinking about is that you're absolutely right about the optimism and sometimes the overly optimistic uh, feelings that I have. What, what I was thinking is that especially, I think this happens in college in general, but especially sometimes at highly intense programs like a, a music conservatory, people get together and as a way to blow off steam, they kind of, they complain. And it's, it's been an experience of mine in many, like, intense musical situations where, okay, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this. Whew, oh, man. That conductor, if he would just slow down 4 BPM, boy, I could just really nail this. Oh, um, I know, right? And I've got to do all this tonguing and my reads aren't working and stuff. And so... For non-music student listeners, BPM is beats per minute. I guess if you have a heart rate, you can... Tell, but sure, yeah, it's a tempo thing. It's about speed of music, and four beats per minute is relatively indistinguishable for a lot of people, including many musicians. So, um, I was being sort of silly in that way. But in the conservatory, um, and I've talked to other people who went to other conservatories, and they have had the same experience. We had this lounge, and in between lessons or rehearsals or theory classes or history classes or whatever, people would always be there. Some, some group of people sitting around and sometimes people were doing homework, but often people were just talking and they started to often get involved in what I started to call misery poker, where somebody would be like, Oh man, my professor was so on my case today. I had my lesson. I played my thing and they're like, okay, that's pretty good, but you need to do it all over again and do it twice as fast. And besides do these three extra etudes. Oh, that is so much work. I never, I don't know how I'm going to get it all done. And somebody else would say, oh, you've only got three etudes. Well, I see your three etudes and I raise you three etudes and a I don't know, technical exercise or something. And they wouldn't say it in poker terms, obviously. But it would kind of go around and everybody was saying, oh, I know, and I've got to do these excerpts. And besides, I'm auditioning for this camp and this other thing. And everybody would do all this stuff. And I was often sitting there thinking, well, if I play, I just have like a handful of trump cards because I have all that same amount of work to do. And besides, oh, I just got a blood test and my creatinine is super high. Can you explain what creatinine is? Um, Yeah, creatinine is one of the um, two major markers in your blood for kidney function. It is one of the waste products uh, of your body that you need to get rid of in your urine. And there are really specific ranges of numbers that you're supposed to have with your creatinine. And when your creatinine is high, that means your kidneys are not working well. So you had sort of the creatinine 
trump card or right or the bad blood test flush <laughs> exactly <laughs> um and i i you know usually just sort of played along without i don't know pulling out all the aces in my sleeve i suppose and it wasn't because like well i want to win or i don't want to win it was just that i i always noticed that we had this thing and sometimes we we re- we fail to recognize the other stuff that people are going through. Because I know that there were times where, you know, I was dealing with a severe health issue plus all the intensity of being a conservatory, but other people were dealing with somebody's sick at home or somebody's dying at home or some other, there's a money issue, there's something going on and they're not talking about it because it's too serious for misery poker that sometimes we complain about, and I certainly am guilty of this, like complaining about little things because the big things are too big to deal with in a way. Mm-hmm. So you get on this plane and yeah. you come back home to Portland. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the procedure right, like medically? Do you have to check into the hospital? Yeah. I don't remember if we went straight from the airport. I don't think so. But um, yeah, basically I went into the hospital for that weekend. Um, it was right around Thanksgiving. And that wasn't fun. Um, I felt very guilty about that, as I felt guilty about many other situations. Um, I was in the hospital for a certain amount of time, I think like a week. And it was during that time that two things were sort of confirmed, I guess. One was, this is for sure chronic rejection, not something that can be treated with a a little steroid pulse or something. And one of my doctors with not a lot of detective work quickly figured out that I had not been taking my meds as much as I was supposed to be taking them. And that's a really serious noncompliance issue as a patient. It's an extremely serious noncompliance issue as a patient. It's probably the most serious, you know, getting drunk every night and that would be the two things, probably. Right. And I, while I don't think that this is entirely, again, your fault because of the cognition issues, mm-hmm. I do want to make sure on the podcast that we highlight, someone gives a donor recipient the gift of an organ. Yeah. It's a serious deal. Or if you have a, a deceased donor, that kidney or that heart or whatever went to one person instead of another person. It's a sort right. of a serious gift that's been bestowed. And so there's a responsibility to take care of the organ, to take the meds the way you're supposed to, to, yeah. to honor the fact that, you know, your life or your, your health and happiness have been saved at the expense of someone else or instead of someone else. Yeah. And so the fact that a doctor would take this really, really seriously is what's supposed to happen. It's a, it's a very oh, serious yeah, issue. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I was realizing, like, I've been chuckling a little bit, and that's mostly because I'm uncomfortable and embarrassed about it, not because it's to be taken lightly. It's It was extremely serious, and it was a really terrifying place. I was already, my, my world had been upended, and here I was home, maybe forever. I didn't know. And there was at least a part of me that knew it was my fault, and I was terrified. And uh, the doctor came in after looking some stuff up and basically checking how often I had been um, renewing my prescriptions, which wasn't often enough, obviously. And my mother, I remember, described it several times as if he had steam coming out of his ears. He was very upset. And like we said, understandably. And he he said, you know, this is unacceptable. I don't think you've been taking your meds. And, you know, I I don't even remember how I responded. I was just sort of devastated. Like, 
in, in that moment, I realized all these sort of constructions that I had of... You're talking about mental constructions. Yeah, mental constructions of logic and things that were based on a poor foundation, like we talked about last time, uh, kind of came like tumbling down. And I realized, oh, no, I was supposed to take them all the time, even if it was a, a couple hours late every once in a while. And it wasn't supposed to be a couple hours late. That's why I had an alarm set. Like, that's why I had all those things. That's what we talked about in all of those meetings and all those education things. Oh, no, oh, no. It was terrifying. Like, I just felt scared and awful and guilty and my and upset and my parents were upset and sad and we were all just like all of the emotions were there except for you know giddiness or something um it was it was a really awful day and then what happens after that day what what's the fallout from you not having taken the meds um not i don't want to say it that way from you having not taken medications properly on the proper schedule. Right. Okay. The fallout, uh, according to rules at the time, it should have been that I was banned from ever receiving a transplant again. I think with the possible exception of somebody is willing to donate. but To you specifically. To me specifically um, as a living donor. But that exception might not even have existed. It was a very serious thing, and they had rules in place saying, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, we will say you don't get another one. Um, and I knew that, obviously. And there was a, a meeting or two among the transplant team at OHSU with the nurses who knew me and the doctors who knew me. It's not a huge team to discuss my case, and they do this regularly, to discuss my case and many other cases. And there was a compromise that was reached on my behalf, essentially, where some of the, the people said, well, he broke the rule, and the rule is if you break the rule, then you don't get one anymore. Right, you're blacklisted. You're blacklisted. And other people saying, yeah, but he's young, and also uremia, and um, he can do better. And so the compromise was I was blacklisted for one year, which means that I couldn't even start any of the transplant processes again. I couldn't go to the education stuff. I couldn't be tested. Nobody else could be tested. We couldn't do any of those things for one year. And also contingent on that was I had to attend. This was not a problem, but I it was one of the stipulations, I had to attend every single doctor's appointment and lab test when it was called for on time without any messing around, basically. And, um, and again, I, while I say that I'm sympathetic to these decisions, it's a little bit chilling to think about, right? Mm-hmm. Because this is essentially a bunch of doctors and nurses forming a tribunal to discuss decisions of life and death. Right. And, you know, being on dialysis costs you health it can cost you time off your life it you know it, it mm-hmm. does serious things yeah. to your body so delaying somebody getting a transplant by by a year can be a grave sentence sure yeah it it can and essentially if they had blacklisted you that would have been a much much more serious sentence even than that yeah it would have completely altered the course of my life so i'm really grateful that it was you know that they decided on this compromise um i was easily able to make all the appointments and and I, I started on dialysis during that time. So in our next episode, we'll talk about dialysis and sort of 
life for you after that first transplant failed, but I want to talk a little bit more about this issue. You said you felt guilty. Yeah. What, what was guilt like right then? And what was blame like with your doctors and your medical team and your, and your family? You know, you, you received this donation from your family. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Well, I felt awful. I mean, I felt awful physically. You know, that was that made it a hard thing to navigate an already sort of impossible thing to navigate. I was very upset. I remember my parents being really upset. And I think, you know, all of this makes total sense. Of course, everyone was upset. And it was this thing where, like, everybody was upset, but nobody wanted to, like, be mad at anybody. Um, I think, well, people wanted to be mad at people but because they were upset, but they didn't feel like it was fair because it kind of wasn't fair to be mad at anybody. You know, like, you could be mad at me for making the wrong decision, but you also understand that my decision-making abilities were completely compromised. It it was hard, um, I think, for everybody to navigate. So in my family, we often uh, deal with things with humor. And so it sort of, I'm going to say it boiled down to this, and that's obviously an extreme oversimplification, but it sort of boiled down to this phrase or this thing that I think I said to my grandfather, which was that while my body is rejecting my kidney, I am not rejecting you. And, you know, that's cute, and it's kind of funny right. in this dark way, <laughs> but it's, um, it sort of doesn't address a lot of the other things that were going on there. I also know that both because of my cognitive issues and all the other things that were going on physically with me, and because of um, my mom's feeling of protectiveness, that I was shielded perhaps from, uh, I don't know, any potential blowback, I guess, or complaints or issues that members of my family might have had. Do you think that, you know, one of the things I said was, I think that probably this is a product of, it wasn't such a great idea for you to go off to college Mm -hmm. and, you know, be alone. I think, you know, if you'd gone to a college that was an hour away from home, probably people would have just seen you more and they would have noticed immediately that something was wrong and you would have, you might have been able to keep the kidney. Who knows? It wasn't doing that well. And you can't, you can't really look back into some sort of retroactive crystal ball to see how that would have gone. But do you think that this made people more suspicious of you being autonomous? You said protective, but do you think that that made people more likely to not not trust you to make decisions? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I also felt like there was a way, well, I guess this is just part of what you're saying, that there was a way in which I felt like I sort of magically became younger and less, huh. less, you know, less responsible. But I'm the eldest grandchild on both sides of my family. And so there had always been sort of a, I don't know, sort of a, a status like, well, I'm the oldest, I'm the most responsible, I'm that person. And that was the point where I felt like, I was no longer that person. I mean, I was still Ari, but I wasn't the person who was clearly and obviously the most responsible because I was oldest. I may have been oldest in number, but I was not really considered, I think, particularly responsible um, in general. And I'm, I'm saying that as if someone was handing out responsibilities. There weren't responsibilities to be handed out um, or, you know, positions of trust or something but it's more of a perception yeah yeah it definitely definitely was where um 
I think, a lot more focus than in terms of we're looking forward to you doing well in the future uh, for grandchildren and the, the children, the, the same generation. That got turned on my younger sister and then on my younger cousins as they started to head off to college because I, you know, I didn't really do that well at college and other things besides. And so I was sort of, it's like I took a step to the left without meaning to. Right. And this is interesting because you, you talk about magically getting younger. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting idea because it's something I've thought about too, is that we talked about you missing so much of high school and yeah. being so sick and, you know, sort of having to work out this weird system where you took the GED and then got retroactive credit by going to college. So you sort <laughs> of like graduate a year late from high school. Right. But then here you are, you've dropped out of college. And so I feel like this is the moment where you kind of, because of your disability, actually do exit the, the so-called normal timeline of life, right? That right. that expected journey of here's what you're going to do, here's this step, here's this step, here's the college step, and then you'll go off to your illustrious career. Mm. And this is definitely the point where you get off that track. Right. I start taking an alternative something. I'm no longer on the standard middle class track. Um, I start going down to the, that path that is labeled very brightly alternative you were also, initially we started talking about this because you asked about guilt, and that's a thing where I feel uh, is sort of a an interesting constant in my life, especially stemming from my health issues. Uh, you know, we talked about this at the time, but we we recently saw Finding Dory, which is a you know movie sort of about disability. Yeah, and we it, just we're just going to date the podcast. We're going right to date here. the podcast right here, and there are other other parts of media that sort of address this, but they had this really brief montage in the film where they start with her as a child and then she grows to an adult and the montage is of her apologizing. And I didn't actually notice that it was in a montage of apology. I just saw it as her growing up and you pointed it out to me after we left the theater. Yeah, but it it was the scene in the movie that struck me the most. I mean, I enjoyed it as a piece of entertainment. I enjoyed it as you know, as a thing that's sort of trying to say, hey, people with disabilities can still do stuff. You know, I'm like, yay, cool. But that point and that idea really, really struck me as being very, very real, where, you know, my health obviously impacts me more than anybody else. But it impacts everybody else that I come into contact with. And it has and it, it will and that's true of anybody with any kind of chronic issue or disability. You know, somebody in a wheelchair can't help being in a wheelchair, but it's inconvenient sometimes for people around them in all kinds of ways. Maybe you need help reaching a shelf, whatever. There's tons of things we can all think of. And that's not their fault, but it's still an imposition on other people. And we sort of have to round my health issues to being my fault in a way. Well, it's even, interesting you were talking about this hypothetical person with a different disability than the one you have. Right. I, well, I was trying to put it maybe into, a, into terms that more people have encountered. But that, like, when I was sick at Lawrence, I had to miss rehearsal. And that meant that either my part wasn't covered or somebody else had to basically sight-read a difficult part, which is hard, or eventually... We would get to a certain point in the rehearsal process and I would have to drop out of that piece or that ensemble and somebody else would then, on top of their entire other load, 
would have to take over for me in that piece, learn a whole new thing and have half the time to do it or less. And that happened over and over. That's not their fault, but it's a big imposition on their life. And it's something that like, did I cause it? Did my disease cause it? Am I my disease? Like all those issues are difficult to unpack. They're still difficult for me, but because I try really hard to like take responsibility for myself and for hurt I cause other people again because like it's not my fault to hurt that person I didn't intend to and I wouldn't have if I could have avoided it but still basically it was me and so to kind of come back to this finding Dory thing so her apologizing over and over reminded me of, I apologize all the time I can't hear somebody is that my fault no I wear hearing aids and it's a loud environment or something else is going on, I can't hear them, I'm apologizing because it's the polite thing to do. But it's like I'm sort of taking on this, uh, like I'm taking on the fault that isn't mine. And I feel like that's a, a thing that is sort of invisible for people with chronic disease, disabilities, and, and issues. And this, this feeling of guilt that is unfair. It's unfair for me to feel guilty for something that I was born with and can't get rid of. But at the same time, it's polite for me to. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's one of those things where I know right now, and you're talking about this very analytically and very self-aware and saying, I feel this guilt and I, <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't, but I do. And I know that, say, come next school year when you're teaching and you have to take sick days because the immunosuppressants you're on mean you get sick, Yeah, you are going to wake up, you are either going to be unable to get out of bed or vomiting or coughing so loud you shake the couch and you're going to be feeling guilty and like you are letting your colleagues and your principals down. And I am going to sigh and say, stop feeling guilty. Just focus on getting better. Right. Right. And that's, I mean, uh, that's it. Because I am letting people down by not being there, but I can't not do that. I can't just like clench and, and be there. And I think that's probably where we're going to leave it on our discussion for right now. Okay. And move on to the listener questions segment. And we actually only have one, and I think it might tie into perhaps this moment in your life that we're talking about and some of the larger, I don't know, darker things we're discussing. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so this question is from Emily, mm -hmm. and she asks, does knowing that you have a chronic condition change the choices you make in life, um, for worse or for better? And she sort of said there's sort of these two avenues. Do you feel like you need to like do as much as I possibly can, or is it one of those things where you can become more fatalistic? Mm, uh, both, I guess, at different times. So, yeah, I mean, absolutely, it influences my decision-making all the time. And then there are times where I just say, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. In a certain way, choosing to go to Lawrence when I did, instead of maybe taking a year, influenced was a decision influenced by just saying, whatever, I'm just going to do it. What, what do you mean, whatever, I'm just going to do it? Well, I mean, you can easily say... Changing your entire life circumstance when you have never lived alone, like I had not, while also changing your entire life circumstance because you've just had a transplant and need to do all this stuff to check up on yourself, maybe doing those two things at the same time is not wise for one or both of those things to go well. Maybe you should take a year and get used to things before going off to college. But I just took sort of a fatalistic view and said... But I want to do it, so I'm going to do it, and whatever happens, happens. So you're saying you did that in part because perhaps you felt a 
a ticking clock? Um, well, the ticking clock was more like I was tired of waiting to go to college. I really, really wanted to go to college. I wanted to study music. I was tired of like missing class and being that the sick kid. I was like, I've got a transplant. I feel great. I want to just go do it and be a normal person in that way while I am a normal person. And I, at the time though, I will say like, maybe it's a bad example because I assumed, great, I have a transplant. I'm a normal person now. Well, yeah. And I think this is sort of an interesting thing with your disease and her question, because for many people with chronic illness, a different one than yours, perhaps, mm-hmm. it's sort of stable. But for you, you know, you have the you, you have a chronic illness where things are really terrible for you health wise when you don't have a functioning kidney. And then if you get a transplant and it's working well, a lot of that will fall away and it'll yeah. fall away very quickly. And so sort of it's and I, this is simplistic, but there are periods of darkness and light yeah, health wise. Right. And so how does all that figure into the way that you Think about life. Think about your goals. I feel like as I've gotten older, I've been a little bit more cautious or try to be a little bit more cautious and consider or attempt to consider more rationally what all the possibilities are. So, you know, for instance, after getting this transplant, this most recent one, my primary goal was to go to college again, finish my degree and get as far in my education as I could. And that had kind of been my pattern with the previous transplants as well. But in this case, I really wanted to just do it while I had the time because at that point it was my third one and I knew these don't always last forever. And so it's not fatalistic. It's about recognizing, okay, these there's a timeline on this. While I feel good, I should fix fix I've said fix but like I should fix this thing that is left unfinished for myself and so I did but I also sometimes I I try at least more rationally I hope to choose like well I don't know how this is going to go and if I'm always thinking about but what if I get sick and then I don't get to do this thing that's fun then I won't get to do these things and maybe it's not the smartest decision but it's not a stupid decision. Like, I'm, I'm not going to make a stupid decision on purpose, but I'm going to sometimes go, I don't know how this is going to go, but I think it's going to go okay and do it. A lot of decisions I, I make are with the recognition that, well, maybe I won't get to do this because of my health. So but, you got to act now. But I'm going to act now because I definitely won't get to do it, say, in 20 years if I don't have this kidney still. Her question brings this to mind, that it's a question that feels bad to ask. Okay. But since we're, I guess, doing a very dark era of the podcast right <laughs> sure. now. Have you ever had times where you thought you might die? Yeah. I don't think that, like, in the we're sort of going through in a linear fashion. I don't think we've reached any of those points where I really was concerned about that. I was scared with the first transplant because it's a major surgery, you know, I have signed so many forms for big and small procedures where the very last thing that that you have to sign off on is, and you could die. And I said it kind of flippantly because it sometimes feels that way because they have to say that because almost every procedure that you could possibly do on a human does carry with it the risk of at least like sepsis and which could lead to death. And that's super dark, and it's always like, well, we have to put on there because it's a like point zero 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 one percent chance, 
And I know that. And it's also exactly the thing that you want staring you right in the face on a form right before you the procedure. Right before the procedure, right before the signature, too. Because usually it's like, well, you're going to have a little pain and have some trouble walking because of this procedure, you know, or whatever for three days. But it also carries a risk of this and then this. And it always gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And then it's death. And like I said, I've signed so many forms. And usually I'm like, okay, whatever, and death. And I'll, I've joked about it with nurses or whoever I'm signing for. But there are a few times where it says that and I go, okay, but that's more of a legitimate real risk here. And there have definitely been a few times um, like lying in a hospital going, I don't know what's going to happen with this. I don't know what's going to happen with this. They don't seem to know. My doctors, my medical team doesn't seem to know exactly what's causing this, how to fix it. And I feel really terrible. Um what if this is really bad and we just don't know it yet and it's not fixable? Um, and, and by not fixable, like, does that mean that I'd be permanently like I am feeling right at that moment? Or does it mean that this is the best I'm ever going to feel until I die? <laughs> um, and that is super dark. It's only happened a few times. But, um, yeah, I've definitely had that feeling a couple times. Okay, so we started with me singing the Brady Bunch song, and now we're into <laughs> talking about death. So death, that's right. Uh, I hope that we'll be able to keep things perhaps a little bit more on the optimistic side next time. But yeah, this spoiler, is, it's all okay. Yeah, things do turn out <laughs> okay. We're working our way chronologically, but if you, you can hear Ari, and he's fine. I am fine. So I will move on to my last question, which is, how are you feeling right now? I feel really. I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, you know, yet again, I've been a little bit stuffed up, but whatever. Like, I, <laughs> I'm fine. It's sunny out. It's nice. Um, I'm good. Well, good. And uh, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Of course. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can find us um, on iTunes if you search for KidneyCast. And please subscribe. Please rate us and write us a review. Share it to people who might be interested. Yeah. We are at KidneyCast on Twitter. You can also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash kidneycast. You can email us at kidneycast at gmail.com. And if you want the show notes or our list of episodes, we are online at my website, lauramorris.com. That is L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S dot com. And we'll talk to you next time on the KidneyCast. Cast.